Well, if many of you have ever experienced uh, with the weather we're having like this, you probably on the way here realized you probably needed new windshield wipers, amen? And uh, it's that time of year where you get going down the road and you turn on your windshield wipers and they don't work. And uh, so sure enough, a couple years ago, um, back when uh, me and Emily were just freshly engaged, her and Penny were going down to Atlanta. They were driving their older Honda Odyssey at the time and they left out in a hurry one Friday afternoon. They were driving to Atlanta and about, about an hour hour south on the other side of Nashville, they were on their way towards Chattanooga, uh, their windshield wipers just weren't working efficiently. And so they called Russ, they called me and said, what do you think we should do? And we told them, we said, hey, you have to go to maybe an auto zone, have to stop by a Walmart, have to stop somewhere and get you some new windshield wiper blades. And so they pull off there at one of the exits and they go in. And of course, if you don't know this, for some reason, I don't know why, but those people at AutoZone, they can just spot you from a mile away. <laughs> When you don't know what you're looking for, they've got the thing you are looking for. And so the girls called me and Russ about, hour, about, about 30 minutes after they'd been in the store, and they called us, and we said, well, how'd it go? And they said, they got us all fixed up. And of course, me and Russ, well, great, awesome. And they got going down the road, and we said, well, how much did it cost? They said, $75. You see, somewhere in the process of them going into that auto zone, somewhere in the process of them needing what they had, there was a mass, mass opportunity for those salesmen to sell them not only windshield wiper blades, but the best windshield wiper blades the market ever had. Rain didn't stand a chance on the way to where they were going. And it seemed like there was a miscommunication in what they needed and what the people were selling. There was a big miscommunication there. And you can see from the text this morning that there is a big miscommunication between what Jesus is offering and what this man is looking for. And you see this very clearly in the text because this man comes to Jesus with a lot of expectations. He comes to Jesus looking to check a box. He comes to Jesus looking to fill a need he is very aware that he has. But he walks away because he doesn't want to buy what Jesus is selling. And at the end of the day, they'll fix those lights here in just a second. At the end of the day, this man comes to Jesus. Look what he says. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher, what must I do? You see, this man comes to Jesus, like many of you maybe come to Jesus this morning, and you are banking on your goodness. You're banking on your own self-righteousness. He comes saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This man obviously comes from wealth. This man obviously comes from a family of prestige in the community. He probably is wearing very lavish clothing. He's probably well-known in society. And yet he comes to this meager carpenter's son, and he comes looking for something that he knows Jesus has, but yet he doesn't want to pay the price Jesus has him to pay. You see, this man comes to him and says, what? Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Look what Jesus says here. Probably one of the most confusing statements Jesus makes if we look at the wrong way. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why do you call me good, Jesus says? Because there's nobody good but God alone. Jesus is saying that statement not for himself, but for you and me and for this young man. I need you to understand that. Jesus is not saying this statement, applying it to himself. He's saying this statement, applying it to me and you, and to this man himself. How do I know this? Because look what Jesus does very, very casually here. He automatically puts himself on the same level as God. He says, if you call me good, then you need to understand that nobody is good except for God alone. 
I want you to look at this, guys. I've done a lot of study, and I've done a lot of research, and I know that when the text says no one is good except God alone, in the Greek it means no one is good but God alone. It means nobody is good but God alone. That means no one, go ahead and fill your name in there, nobody's good. There is nobody in human history who has ever died that was a good person except for one person. And he didn't stay dead because the grave couldn't hold him. There is nobody, no matter how many Girl Scout cookies they've sold, no matter how many Girl Scout cookies you bought, no matter how many grandmas you've helped across the road, no matter how many puppies you rescued, no matter how many cats you left for despair, amen, there is nobody who is good in our society. There is nobody good. You might think, well, I'm a good person. At the odds of it, on the innermost part of your being, you know you're not good. If we could see the motives behind every good deed, I promise you behind the good deed is not a good motive, but a wicked person looking to reveal self-glory for themselves and get something out of it in return. There is none righteous, no, not one, the text says. Over and over again, this is a problem in our society. Why? Because we come to God asking like we're doing him a favor by saving us. When in reality, there is nobody good except for God. There's no good people here. There's no perfect marriages here. There's no good kids here. There are 31 of them daggum kids downstairs. But there's no good ones. You might think, my little Johnny, my little Billy, he's a sinner. He's a sinner. I know they're a sinner. Why? Because they come out biting. You don't have to teach your kids that. You've got to teach them to do good, not do bad. Why? Because they are bad from the very womb, the Word of God tells us. At the end of the day, there is nobody good except God alone. But look what Jesus does here. This man wants to claim that he's good. But look what Jesus does. Jesus takes him to the law. He says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Look what this man says. Look at the pride. Look at the arrogance this man says. He said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. This man has the audacity to look at the only perfect person in human history and look at him and says, I've done it. I've checked all the boxes. Look what Jesus masterfully does. Once again, if you read the text quickly, we miss this. He covers the Ten Commandments, but you you pay attention to the ones he does cover. He covers the bottom six. He doesn't cover the top four. He covers the bottom six. Why? Because the top four have to do with our relationship with God. The bottom six have to do with our relationship with each other. So he goes through there. He says, have you ever stolen? Nope. Have you ever bared false witness? Nope. Have you ever honored, do you honor your father and mother? He says, yes, I've done all these. But look what he's banking on here, church. He's banking on his blamelessness. And this is a word that's lost in our culture. If I were to go to you and say, I'm a blameless person, you'd probably be like, I don't know what that means. Uh, You know, you don't have that on your Facebook bio, husband, father, blameless. Uh, You know, nobody uses that word in a modern context. But for the Jew back in these days, they considered you to be blameless if nobody could label a charge against you in the court of law. If nobody could lay a charge against you in the religious sect of saying you've broken commandments, you've not sinned publicly, then you are considered to be blameless in the sight of the law, as far as spiritual law goes, as far as the Ten Commandments goes. To remind you of this, remember the Apostle Paul. He even gives out his resume. Remember this? He says, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees from the tribe of Benjamin. You know, circumcised on the eighth day. Paul goes through all of that resume, but you know what he says at the bottom of it? He says it's all worthless. It's all worthless in comparison to who Christ is. If there's anybody in human history who is ever good enough to be saved, it wouldn't be me and you, it would be the people in this book. But at the end of the day, every person in this book was just as spiritually bankrupt as me and you sitting here today. And hopeless without Christ. He goes through these six things and the man says, I've kept them all. 
I'm blameless. I've never broken any of these commandments. I think it's fascinating in our culture that we rally to the Ten Commandments. Several years ago, some of you all remember uh, when there was outside of the courthouse, I don't remember exactly where it was, it's been several years ago where they were removing Ten Commandments and people threw a fit. And don't get me wrong, we probably should have thrown a fit for that, but I think of so many other things the church doesn't throw a fit over, but we're not going to get started there, amen. But at the end of the day, let me remind you of this very sobering fact. Point number one, the law doesn't reveal our goodness, but exposes our sinfulness. Look at me, the law does not expose our goodness, but it reveals our sinfulness. What do I mean by this? Almost like an MRI and an x-ray machine. The same thing happens. The MRI and the x-ray, guess what? Both of them are incapable of solving your problem. Both of those devices, they reveal the problem, but at the end of the day, if you have the best MRI machine in the world, you have the best x-ray technician, if you have somebody who works their way and can look at all the scans, look at all the numbers, knows all of the fluid, knows all of the dye, at the end of the day, if you are sitting in that room and they are just pointing at the scans, telling you what is wrong with you, you are helpless without a physician who knows how to read the scans and operate according to the scans appropriately to remove the problem the scans reveal. Such is true with the law. The law does not point us to a checkbox to check. The law points us to a grave we deserve. The law points us to the shackles of sin which we all find ourselves in. Because let me promise you this. Look at me very carefully. I love what Tim Keller said about this. He said, it is impossible to keep the bottom six without keeping the top four. Every sin we commit, church, is not going to the bottom of the list, but breaking the top first. Sin is a vertical problem before it's a horizontal problem. What do I mean by that? Before you sin against your neighbor, you've already sinned against God. Because you've broken his law. You broke, you've made yourself God. I love what jo- Joseph even says about this. Joseph, whenever Potiphar's wife is ripping off his clothes, you know, he, says, he says, I cannot do this. I cannot sin against God. Because every sin starts with us sinning against God first. Because the biggest person you've ever offended in your entire existence has not been your neighbor, but been the king of kings of glory. You're a sinner. You've offended God. You've literally spit in the face of God and said, no matter what you say, I'm not going to do what you say. Because the law does that. It reveals it, but not only does it reveal it, but it multiplies it. The more you learn about the law, the more you understand you're a transgressor of the law. Kind of like with children, the older they get, there is harsher penalties for what they break. Why? Because they should be maturing more where they understand, hey, we don't do this. We don't do that. It's socially acceptable for your toddler who's learning potty training to pee off the front yard. But if you pee off the front yard in certain places, you'll go to jail. Because there is grace for him, praise God, amen. But there is no grace for you. There's a lawsuit for you, amen. Because at the end of the day, when you mature, you should understand, hey, I shouldn't do that. I should do this instead. Because when you learn more, you should also understand, hey, the sin is multiplied more. Because understanding here that we need to appreciate and love the surgeon more and more. This man, look what happens here. It says that that Jesus says to him, Jesus looks at him, I'm sorry. Looking at him, verse 21, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. And every person who hadn't been in church in a long time sitting here thinking, Pastor Nick's going to preach about money. I knew he was. When the text is not talking about money. Look at me. The text is not talking about money. 
Isn't it peculiar here that Jesus loves him? But look what he also says. You lack one thing. He doesn't tell the man what he lacks. You ever notice that? Like he doesn't say you lack one thing. Here's what you lack. No, what Jesus does is more beautiful than that. He reveals what the man truly needs to see that the man is blind to see. He looks at this man and says, you lack one thing. He says, go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. You come and follow me. Look what the man does, though. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He had great possessions. I love that the the call of Christ does not change no matter your socioeconomic status. Now, what do I mean? That's a fancy way of saying no matter your income, no matter your race, no matter your religious background, no matter who your mom and daddy are, the commands of Christ are always the same. The two words that summarize Jesus' entire ministry are these two words, follow me. Follow me. These are the same words he spoke to John and Zebedee's, I mean, Zebedee's sons. These are the same words he spoke to Peter. These are the same words he speaks to all of his disciples, even to this day. He beckons us all what? Come and follow me. When we were baptized this morning, Donnie was leading us singing, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back because you've made the decision to follow Christ. And that means you've submitted not only to the salvation plan of Christ, but to the lordship of Christ. I've never met a sinner who didn't want a savior, but I've met tons of sinners who never wanted a lord. And look at me very carefully here. You cannot have Jesus as your savior without making him first your lord. You don't get to have it your way. This flies in the face of American Christianity that says, you can love Jesus hate his church, hate his commandments, and lack obedience, but you can still say you love Christ. Foolishness. Foolishness is what it is. At the end of the day, this man lacked one thing indeed. He lacked what? He lacked to truly see what his idol was. His idol was his wealth. His idol was his possessions. His God was his riches. And this is why Jesus calls them to cast off his riches. Why? Because if he casted off that God and had faith in the one true God, then he would gain far more than his riches could ever buy him. At the end of the day, Jesus wanted to expose to this man what the law had been trying to expose to this man, was that he needed a Savior that could, that could truly, truly rescue him from his spiritual brokenness and spiritual bankruptness. And this man couldn't see it. I love this, in fact, because why? The man may have walked away sad, but he also walked away loved. There's not a single human being that walks into hell without being loved by a divine Savior who would have laid down his life for him. Every person who walks into hell has to, at the end of the day, walk over the scarred hands of Jesus saying, I don't want you. I don't want you. I don't want you. Because we live in a day and age, ladies and gentlemen, where my point number two, where people want the kingdom but they don't want the king to have them. People want the kingdom, but they don't want the king to have them. What do I mean by this? You hear this in the terminology of even modern-day country songs. Some of you remember several years ago, Kenny Chesney had that popular song come out, Everybody Wants to Go to Heaven, but Nobody Wants to Go Right Now, right? At the end of the day, we are a culture that's obsessed with living for eternity. We'll get Botox, injections, we'll get every implant you can possibly imagine at the end of the day because we want the kingdom, baby, amen? But we don't want the king. We want the country, 
but we don't want the president. We want the benefits, but we don't want to work at the job. We want the commitment, but we don't want marriage. Ooh, see me all picking up what I'm putting down? At the end of the day, we are a culture that wants more and more and more without putting more and more into it. We want the kingdom, but we don't want a king. And look at me, you cannot have Christ, once again, as your Savior without having him as your king. He will not accept it. And you might be like, well, Jesus can be my king on Sunday, but I'm going to be my king on Monday. Then I hate to tell you this, friend, but Jesus is not your king. Jesus is not your king. So what did this man truly need to do? This man needed to repent. This man needed to sell everything he owned to prove to Christ, I will follow you. I'll give up everything I have to gain you, Christ. But at the end of the day, this man wouldn't pay that price. This catches us off guard, but can you imagine the disciples that caught them off guard? Look what happens in verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. His disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to him again, Children, how difficult for it is for the kingdom to, for difficult to enter the kingdom of God. Can you, can you just put yourself in their shoes? Can you just put yourself in their shoes for a minute? This man had really nice clothing. This man had everything you could imagine. I can imagine Judas was over there counting his money, thinking this man's going to help us out. I can imagine Peter was thinking this man's going to give us so much money, we can literally fund missions across the world. Can you imagine they were counting everything this man had, but they weren't counting the cost that they themselves had paid. They had missed it. They had missed it. They had missed it themselves, and they were amazed that Jesus would turn away a person who had great wealth. Because at the end of the day, guys, every person looks the same from heaven's window. We're all needy in need of a Savior. Doesn't matter if you're born in America. Doesn't matter if you're born in Africa. Doesn't matter if you're white. Doesn't matter if you're black. At the end of the day, there are only two people in God's kingdom. There are those who are saved, trusting in Christ, and submitting to his lordship. Are those who are lost, who are rebelling against his lordship, who deserve death, hell, and damnation. There's no middle ground with Christ. There's no good people and bad people. There's either saved or there's lost. At the end of the day, there's either people going to heaven or there's people going to hell. And at the end of the day, you cannot tell me you want to go to heaven, but you don't want to go where God's people are at, even on this earth. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And you want to tell you, you may show you one of the misquoted verses in all of Scripture. We're about to read it. When I was a kid, this, was, this is honey butter right here. I heard this preached so many times. It wasn't until I got older that I really understood that it was completely taken out of context. Because look what it says here in verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Anybody else grow up in a church? Just raise your hand. Where you heard it preached that what this meant was that a, ca a needle eye was a small city gate, and in order for the camel to go through that small city gate, you had to strip the camel of everything it had on it, and the camel had to barely squeeze through, and the camel would get through the gate, and when he got on the other side, you could put everything back on it. Anybody else heard that their entire lives? Several hands be going up. The rest of y'all lying. Y'all nodding, I said raise your hand. Can I look at you today and tell you that's a lie? How do I know it's a lie? Pastor, it's a bold statement. It's a bold statement because I trust what Christ says more than what your previous pastors have said. 
And how, do I, how can I say such a bold claim? Because look what the men says. It says the men, they were exceedingly astonished at what he said and said, then who can be saved? They didn't say, man, that's difficult. You know what, Donnie? They didn't say, man, that sounds hard, but we can surely do that. No, Jesus literally means here, pay attention to me, I want you to get this. He's literally talking about the very eye of a needle. Not a city gate, the very eye of a needle. Now, if I held up a needle right here, for all the millennials, it's a piece of metal. There's a round hole in it. You put thread through it, and you tie it, and this is how you sew. And even if you're old school and you remember crocheting with your grandma, all me and Packardy was a chain, amen? Praise God. But an actual metal needle, if I held it up here and had a full-size camel, and I said, do you believe I could put this camel through a needle? You would be like, ain't no way. Impossible. Exactly, that's the word, Donnie. They would say, it's impossible. But look what Christ says. Jesus looked at them and said, with man... It is impossible. He didn't say with men's difficult. I want you to understand this. He says, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. All things are possible with God. I want you to really understand that God does not take good people and make them better people. Look at me here. God does not make religious people and make them more religious. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible explicitly says that God takes dead people and makes them alive. That's what God does. He doesn't take halfway dead people and transform them. No, God, the Bible says you were dead, dead, dead in trespasses. You had no hope. You had no way of coming to Christ, so Christ came to you. Some of, thinking, some of you probably said, I found God. I promise you, friend, you have never found God because you've never been looking for God. At the end of the day, every person that came to Christ, Christ drugged them. Christ pulled them. Christ willed them to be saved. Because that's what Christ does. Because with God, without God, it's impossible. Nobody wakes up and says, you know what, I think I should start following Christ today. No, it's Christ draws them. This is why at the end of the day, any religion out there that preaches you can just be good enough is bankrupt. Because you can never be good enough. I don't know about you, but if I could lose my salvation, I would. How do I know I'm married? How do I know I got kids? If you don't think kids make a preacher cuss, come to my house. I'm like a liar out of you. Emily knows when I grip my teeth, she says, easy, daddy. Because I don't know about you, but some two foot tall can make you feel like eight feet tall. Because at the end of the day, I truly need you to understand, if you could lose your salvation, you would. You might say, well, what about on my deathbed? You would have a filthy thought run through your head at the deathbed. Because you're a sinner. There's no way to clean you up good enough to make you presentable to God. I love one quote I read. Actually, some good I saw on Facebook this week. I know, big shocker. A good quote I said, it said, cleaning yourself up and coming to God is like fixing yourself before you go in the emergency room. Can you imagine how silly you'd look? You go in the yard, you've got, you got super glue and stitches all over you, thinking, Doc, I didn't have to work for you. Here I am. That'd be silliness, Right? Because there's no way at the end of the day you can stitch yourself up and you've got a massive problem. 
At the end of the day, you need a position. At the end of the day, you need someone to do the impossible. And I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that we have a God who specializes in the impossible. You don't believe me that God specializes in the impossible? Let me just call some witnesses to testify for you today. Why don't you go ask Adam if God can give him a wife out of nowhere? I don't know about you, but the word of God says Adam was lonely, and so he asked God, that God filled the need and took a part of his rib, and that there uh, Eve was made, and Eve was brought into him. And you know what the Bible says? The Bible says he looked at, uh, Adam looked at Eve and said, Whoa, man, whoa! Some of y'all get that next week, amen? That God can do the impossible. You must say, I don't think God can do the impossible. Come here, Noah, why don't you tell, tell us how God made it rain? For such a long period of time, for 40 days, that literally the whole entire earth was flooded, but God made a way by having you construct an ark out of gopher wood. Tell that to Noah someday. Ask God, ask him if God can do the impossible. Why don't you ask Moses if God can do the impossible? Where literally every water droplet in the Nile River turned into blood. Where literally the very, very Red Sea itself stood up on the end. Ask that to the Israelites if God can do the impossible. Why don't you ask Daniel if the lions can be tamed? Why don't you ask Samson if the pillars can move? Why don't you ask Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego if the fire has a stench? Why don't you ask anybody in the Old Testament or anybody in the New Testament, anybody in human history, if God can do the impossible? Because what is impossible with man is possible with God. It always has been. It always will be. God loves when somebody says it's impossible. Because only when it's impossible does God get the glory. Because if it is possible, guess what? We get the glory. We think we did something. But only when it's impossible does Christ get the glory. Look what Peter says to him. I don't know about you, but I see myself in Peter more than you've ever seen yourself in anybody else. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in the same time, houses and brothers and sisters, mothers and children and lands, with persecution. Don't you wish that wasn't in there? And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last shall be first. Pastor Nick, how in the world could Peter... And all those boys leave everything they've ever owned when they met Jesus. How could they do such a thing? How could they do that? Because my last point for you this morning is, when you are in love, the cost doesn't matter. You ever been in love before? Some of y'all had to go back decades ago. Don't raise your hand, amen, brothers. You ever been in love where anything mama wanted, she got... You ever had them little children look at you and anything they wanted, anything that you could possibly do to fix their situation, you would pay it. Anything, imagine anything you could fathom. When you're in love, love doesn't care about the cost. And at the end of the day, that man was loved by Jesus, but the man did not love Jesus like Jesus loved him. He walked away sad, but he didn't walk away unloved. Why? Because he didn't love Christ. But Christ loved him. I wish I could tell you that everything you've given up for Christ, he's going to give it right back to you right now. But that's not how the Bible says, what the Bible says. There are people down in Texas who are peddling prosperity. 
You've probably seen him on the cover of books. You probably heard him say, if you send me a check, God will bless you in the name of Christ and a, a bunch of money in your bank account. That's not what the Bible says. But the Bible does promise something riches cannot buy. The Bible does promise you that the moth cannot touch it. The Bible promises you an inheritance that nobody can fight over. The Bible promises what? He will not leave us or forsake us. That he will always be with us. And when you truly walk with Christ, you truly understand that strip everything else away from me. As long as I've got Christ, I can make it. Because the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, but the Lord is still good. Because his goodness is not based on him being good to you. His goodness is based on him being himself. His character is never up for judgment. Why? Because his character is the same. God has been good to everybody. God has showered common grace on everyone here. God has blessed you beyond merit. Even though you don't believe in Him, He still allows you to breathe. Even though you don't trust Him, He allows you to have children. Even though you don't even submit to Him, He gives you the good grace that He's given you. Because Christ loves you. Because, because Christ has a plan for you. Because Christ died for you. Because the biggest need you had was not numbers in your bank account. The biggest need you had is not to be healed physically. No, the biggest need you had, brother, the biggest need you had, sister, was you were spiritually dead. You needed somebody to raise you from the dead. Nobody can do that. Your boyfriend can't do it. Your girlfriend can't do it. Sleeping around won't do it. Getting high won't get you there. Getting drunk won't get you there. Popping pills won't do it. Getting on social media and getting everybody airing out your dirty laundry so everybody knows, won't do it. At the end of the day, the only person who can fix a problem you have is not you, not your counselor, not your doctor, but Christ, the living one true God. He is the only one. And guess what? When he saves you, you probably gonna have more problems. I'm just going to shoot you straight. But thanks be to God. That this life, in comparison to eternity, is like the cover page of a book. That cover page of the book, it looks really pretty, you turn it over, that's not even the, it, it, the rest of the book is way bigger than that cover page. The life we're living right now is a shadow of what's to come. And what's to come is all of eternity. How long is forever? Forever and ever. Eternity has no beginning and it has no end. So that's why I tell you today, heaven is sweet, Christ is here, Christ is offering, hell is hot, and eternity is long. I would ask you today, brother, I would ask you today, sister, leave it all behind. Leave whatever you're clinging to, leave whatever Savior you're holding on to, thinking this will save me, this will save me. Your kids can't save you. Your marriage can't save you. This church can't save you. I can point you to the Savior, but I can't save you. Those waters, let me tell you, they might be cold and give you a shout, but they can't save anybody. They just make a sinner wet. That's all they do. Because at the end of the day, what we showed you this morning is a physical representation of a spiritual reality. That when you get saved, you are buried with Christ, and you are raised with Him to walk in newness of life. Because Christ killed me a long time ago. I died when I was 12 years old. I waved a white flag. 
and said, Lord, I can't save myself. I deserve death, hell, and the grave. And I'm crying out to you, Christ. And ever since then, I was 12 years old. Have I had times where I've wondered? Have I had times when I've strayed? Absolutely. Have I had times where I've left him? Absolutely. There's never been a time Christ has left me. There's never been a time I haven't felt the shepherd's arms pull me back in the fold. And you might be thinking, brother or sister, well, I've been out of the fold for a long, long time. It's probably because you ain't a part of his fold. Because the reality is, if you're a part of his fold, he'll bring you back into the fold. And I know what you're thinking. I got that baptism certificate. I got that vacation Bible school pledge. Some of you might be thinking, I got this, I got that. You're banking on treasures this earth can offer when they will fade away like everything else. The only thing that lasts is your relationship with Christ. I've never seen a hearse with you all. I love when, uh, when Rockefeller passed away. One of his friends came up to his financial assistant, Rockefeller. I don't know if you know the name of the richest man in American history. He came up to his assistant and said, what, how much did he leave? And the assistant said, all of it. Some of you didn't get it. He said, well, how much did he leave? And he said, all of it. Because no matter how big the sandcastle you build, at the end of the day, it's gone quickly. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done for Christ will echo through the halls of eternity. And at the end of the day, it's by grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone that saves. There's nothing else. There's no other hope. And some of you out there might be thinking, well, I believe that all religions are pointing to God. Then that's going against what Christ has said. And what Christ has said is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one in the Greek, you know what that means? Nobody. No one comes to the Father except through me. You mean to tell me all those people bowing down to all those other gods, they're not going to make it? They're not going to make it unless they repent and turn to Christ. No one outside of those who have submitted to Christ as Savior and Lord will make it to eternity and make it to heaven. Because that's what this book says. Well, I don't trust that book. You're going to walk away sad, brother. You're going to walk away sad, sister. Because this is the Word of God. The flowers will fade. The grass will wither. But at the end of the day, guess what? The Word of the Lord endures forever. Won't you come? Trust in Christ by grace alone. Won't you come?